Talks on Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. In On the Couch, Dr. Cravis explores the social history of recumbent posture and delves into its symbolism and representations from classical antiquity to the present. He then situates current analyst ambivalence about the couch within this complex history. Since its publication in 2017, On the Couch has been translated into German, Turkish and Russian and received a Gradiva Award in 2018. His other recent publications include The Analyst's Hatred of Analysis in the Psychoanalytic Quarterly in 2013 and The Googled and Googling Analyst in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, 2017. Nathan Kravis is Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Associate Director of the DeWitt Wallace Institute of Psychiatry, History, Policy and the Arts at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. He is also a training and supervising analyst at the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research and author of On the Couch, A Repressed History of the Analytic Couch from Plato to Freud, MIT Press 2017. He is in private practice in New York City. If it were possible to compose a history of conversation, particularly intimate conversation, such a history would surely have to take note of the peculiarities of psychoanalysis. Private conversation is the social expression of interiority. In psychoanalysis, oddly choreographed free-ranging conversation was the foundational guiding principle of technique. Psychoanalytic treatment, at least in the form originally designated by Freud, features a recumbent patient talking to an analyst seated behind the couch. The strangeness of the setup, because where else would one lie down expressly for the purpose of talking to a nearby but unseen interlocutor, is part of its power. But such a history of conversation, were we to attempt it, would ramify in so many different directions at once as to be unwieldy and incoherent, for it would have to comprehend within it the histories of manners, of privacy, of comfort, reading, clothing, furniture, medicine and the healing arts, including mesmerism and hypnosis, photography, and art from Greco-Roman mosaics and funerary monuments, to modern portraiture. These diverse histories all comprise the social history of recumbent posture. And as I recount and illustrate in my book, all of them converged in fin de siècle Vienna to make possible the origination of a new treatment modality, a talking cure featuring recumbent speech. Most analysts, I think it's safe to say, know little about the couch's provenance, its origins as part of technique, beyond Freud saying he couldn't stand being stared at all day, which, if you think about it, doesn't explain recumbent posture at all. Because if the idea is for analyst and analysand not to see each other, 
why not simply arrange the chairs to face away from one another? You need not have one party recline while the other sits to accomplish that, that is, to preclude seeing each other. Likewise, if the idea is to promote free association, why would an analyst intervene with a directive about posture rather than trying to analyze whatever is inhibiting the associative process? Freud never addressed these questions. Nevertheless, for several decades, certainly for most of the 20th century, almost every analyst after Freud required or recommended the use of the couch. And in reading the analytic literature on the topic, I saw that no one seemed to know why. So I decided to look elsewhere for what might explain the couch's persistence as a signature element of analytic technique, as well as its resilience as a widely recognized symbol of introspection and self-discovery, even at a time when the popularity of psychoanalysis as a treatment modality has waned. And so I decided to delve into the social history of posture and the cultural history of recumbence. And in doing so, what I found was that far from connoting passivity or submission to medical authority, recumbence in social settings has long served as an expression of freedom, pleasure, luxury, and intimacy. In the West, this goes all the way back to antiquity, when middle and upper class Greeks and Romans liked to depict themselves on their funerary monuments in the classic reclining dining pose of the Greek symposion and the Roman convivium. In fact, people who had risen socially or who had once been slaves and became free citizens especially liked to depict themselves this way, recumbent upon the kline, kline is the Greek word for couch, whence our words recline and clinic, in other words, they didn't depict their virtues or their accomplishments. That's what aristocrats did. No, they depicted themselves as able to enjoy the freedom, the pleasure, the comfort of reclining dining. And the same is true of the earliest depictions of the Last Supper, where Jesus and the apostles are shown reclining. This was the case until Renaissance painters decided it would be much more dignified to have them seated politely around a dining table as if everyone had place cards. This is the kind of Last Supper image we're more familiar with now. But if you're going for historical accuracy, you should probably go with the historically authentic reclining dining image, as I illustrate in my book. And Western neoclassical portraiture echoes the recumbent pose of the Greco-Roman reclining dining tradition, as I also show. Since then, the sofa and the couch have been the dominant locus of intimate conversation and a favored setting for the artistic depiction of interiority. Long before Freud adopted its use for treatment purposes, the couch was linked with evolving ideals of comfort, pleasure, and social intimacy. Even though some mental health professionals today frown upon its use, the couch retains its significance in the public lexicon of symbols for interiority because it resonates so strongly with these cultural ideals. In fact, the couch has always been a symbol of interiority. I'm sure you know that for a long time, men thought it was dangerous for women to read novels because women supposedly had too vivid imaginations were easily corruptible morally, and female sexuality was thought to be poorly contained or out of control. In my book, 
I try to show how this led to the sexualization of the woman reader. And I argue that the sexualization of the woman reader, which I illustrate in my book, defends against a danger even greater than the strength of female sexuality, namely the danger of a woman having her own private thoughts, her own unmediated experience of literature, her own mind. And I think this is what recumbent speech represents, the affirmation in the presence of another of having one's own mind. And this is part of what made psychoanalysis at its inception seem so transgressive or nonconformist and exciting as a novel form of journeying into the self. Freud's couch is both ruhebet, the German word Freud often uses for couch, which means daybed or literally resting bed or calm bed. So yes, Freud's couch is both ruhebet and Turkish divan, carrying the twin identities of sanatorium and asylum fixture on the one hand and romantic symbolic on the other. Freud's couch antedates psychoanalysis in the sense that he obtained it and began using it clinically during the years when he was steeped in the practice of hypnosis, the cathartic method pioneered by Breuer and Freud and elaborated in their co-authored 1895 book, The Studies on Hysteria, and of course, his pressure technique, a method he briefly toyed with and then quickly dropped as too manipulative. Freud's couch heavily decorated with rugs, pillows, and blankets, and surrounded by his extensive collection of antiquities, has the look of a Turkish divan. It speaks volumes about its owner's taste and interests. The kilims on Freud's couch tie him to a whole decorative style that had become tremendously popular in Vienna in his day, linking him to certain traditions of romanticism, Orientalism in Edward Said's famous stipulation, and eroticism or erotic freedom. Freud's divan was a gift from a former patient given to him sometime around 1890, but he had probably been using one sort of chaise longue or another since opening his private practice in 1886. And in fact, in 1883, He visited an exhibition in Vienna of model domestic interiors showcasing the advent of indoor electric lighting. And there he saw several rooms furnished with divans draped with kilims. He he visited this exhibition more than once, and in letters to his fiancée, Martha Barnes, written in the summer of 1883, Freud very clearly stated that the furniture interested him much more than the novel electric lighting. But the chaise longue had been a fixture of medical and asylum-based psychiatric practice long before Freud thought of using it in his novel form of psychotherapy. Tuberculosis was the leading cause of death among adults in Europe and the U.S. throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and for almost 150 years, the primary treatment for TB was the Luftligakur, the open-air rest cure. Portable, adjustable, and cleansable recliners proliferated in the West to satisfy medical need, as well as the demand by a burgeoning bourgeoisie for furniture suitable for seaside excursions and other leisure time pursuits. The early 20th century modernist architectural style was pioneered largely by men and women, including Joseph Hoffman, Jean Prouvé, Charlotte Perriand, Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, 
Marcel Breuer, Alvar Aalto, and Sergei Chermayev, who had designed or drew upon designs of recliners for TB sanatoria before turning them into upscale domestic furnishings. The major psychiatric treatments of the 19th century, hypnosis, hydrotherapy, cutaneous electrotherapy, phototherapy, and diet and rest cures, all sought to import ideals of comfort and healthy relaxation derived from the long dominance of the open-air rest cure of the TB sanatorium. These treatment modalities promoted an association in the minds of practitioners and patients alike between recumbence and cure. Freud trained in and was shaped by this medical culture before profoundly shaping it himself. Thus, Freud's couch represents the fusion of 19th century therapeutics with modernism in design and architectural style and exemplifies the way science and decor influence each other. The Antiquities collection surrounding Freud's couch in Vienna reflected his engagement with the romance of archaeology, then in ascendance. He began collecting funeral urns, death masks, bronze coffins, and mummy portraits shortly after his father's death in 1896. Archaeology provided him with a rich source of metaphor, not only about loss and mourning, but also about repression and the structure of the psyche. For Freud, the free association technique was initially all about remembering and the lifting of repression. Before he developed a keen understanding of the phenomena of resistance and transference, Freud saw making the unconscious conscious as the primary goal of psychoanalytic treatment. Free association and dream interpretation, Freud's principal tools of memory excavation, were thought to be aided by lying on the couch. And for some people, they still are, though most analysts today would not see the use of the couch as a guarantor of a free associative process or the sine qua non of analytic technique. There is still no reliable research data on posture, frequency of sessions, or duration of treatment. And in the absence of formal empirical studies, no one can claim to know for sure for whom or for what type of problem the use of the couch is best suited. Nevertheless, the couch endures not only as a cultural icon and symbol of interiority and self-reflection, but also as a praxis. Perhaps one day we'll know more about the psychophysiology of recumbence or be better able to predict who will find its use beneficial in treatment. Until then, we will have to content ourselves with the observation that for some people, reclining for the purpose of talking to someone is a uniquely powerful experience that has no parallel in the social world. In researching this topic, I found a split representation of the couch in the minds of analysts, and I provide illustrations of both sides of this split in my book. There's the Spartan and austere analytic couch, like the cline or lectum of the Greeks and Romans, versus the couch that is lush and romantic and bed-like, like Freud's couch surrounded by his antiquities and his archaeological motifs. Moreover, Freud's couch and office decor themselves carry a bunch of different meanings. His romanticized Orientalist motifs convey a sense of a late Victorian version of a harem or an opium den, 
just imagine all that cigar smoke wafting all over you. But let's note also his collection of funeral urns and death masks and money, mummy portraits, configuring his office into what in my book I refer to as Freud's libidinized necropolis, a sort of private theater of loss and mourning, reflecting his engagement with the ghosts of his past. Many contemporary analysts have distanced themselves from Freud's aesthetic, heavily inflected with the romantic and archaeological motifs so popular in his, in his day, preferring the sparer, more Spartan couch usually seen in cartoons and illustrations today. But no one can escape the moral meanings of appearance. Furniture arrangement and office decor ineluctably convey something unspoken about the analyst's values and self-image. Even the attempt to banish all traces of the practitioner's taste and subjectivity is itself a loud statement about how such an ascetic analyst conceptualizes analytic technique. So no matter where an analyst locates him or herself along the continuum of consulting room design and decoration, ranging from Freud's unabashedly self-revelatory setting to the most medicalized or personally denuded office aesthetic, the analyst's self-representation is enacted through decor in every instance. This has led me to refer in my book to analytic office decor as the analyst's moral interior, and that's the title of the penultimate chapter of my book. Posture is an essential yet mostly under-theorized part of any spiritual journey or therapeutic endeavor. Recumbence is erotic and potentially transgressive, yet in the psychoanalytic setting, it is also abstinent. It is intimate, yet due to the asymmetric choreography of the seated analyst positioned behind the reclining patient, it is also distanced and boundaried. The couch is a site of fantasy and free association, yet also a space of self-scrutiny and self-reflection. And it is these generative tensions and ambiguities that make the couch and the choreography of its use by analyst and patient along with the whole history of recumbent posture in social settings and recumbent speech itself, so intriguing. Even within psychoanalysis, ambivalence about the analytic couch is rife. Some see the use of the couch as a relic of a more authoritarian era of treatment, a power play on the part of an avoidant or self-aggrandizing analyst, an impediment to authentic interpersonal engagement and healing, all of which might sometimes be accurate. But in this respect, the use of the couch is no different from any other aspect of psychotherapeutic technique. Abuse and exploitation by the unscrupulous, self-absorbed, or poorly trained practitioner is always possible, and has always has been throughout the history of the healing professions. Obviously, good therapeutic technique depends on sensitivity and flexibility, not on the doctrinaire insistence on one posture instead of another. But any a priori assumption that the use of the couch constitutes bad technique and should be entirely eschewed is no more warranted than was its rigid requirement by the early Freudians. The analytic couch is a firmly entrenched social signifier and has entered the public lexicon of symbols for self-awareness and self-discovery. Because of the links between recumbent speech and cultural ideals of intimacy, privacy, and freedom of expression, the couch endures. 
One could almost say that the couch is healthier or more resilient than psychoanalysis itself. What does it mean that the couch continues to be such a robust metonym, even as the popularity and prestige of psychoanalytic treatment has waned? Perhaps such a symbol has taken on new life in our digital era, in which our relationship to privacy and inwardness clashes so strongly with our addiction to the internet and our always-on smart devices. You don't have to be in treatment to value self-awareness, but psychoanalysis remains a special path toward interiority. Despite the ups and downs of psychoanalysis, the analytic couch perseveres as a cultural icon, at least in part because the felt need for spiritual nourishment, inwardness, and freedom, including freedom from our devices, is as urgent now as it ever was.